the vault. High atop the pastoral center of the Diocese of Camden, you're listening to Talking Catholic. Hi, I'm Tara Smith from the Diocese of Metuchen. I'm the host of Am I Not Here? And I'm joined along with my counterpart, Mike Walsh, who is the host. Mike, I'll let you actually jump in on this part. <laughs> I'll let you introduce yourself. That's true. I, I am. I am the, uh, the, the host of Talking Catholic Podcast. And uh, you and I actually represent both uh, South Jersey and North Jersey. I on the beautiful southern end and you on the lovely uh, northern end. Uh, you in the Diocese of Metuchen. And uh, we're having a sort of an emergency crossover mm-hmm. podcast today. Uh, this is unique. Uh, we just had a podcast crossover at the end of uh, 2021. It was a little bit more fun. Uh, we mm-hmm. always like having uh, you and uh, Jerry, your co-host on. And I know my co-hosts love to, to chat with you guys. Uh, but this is a special one because it's a rather, uh, and an there's a sense of urgency to what we're going to talk about today. So uh, first of all, Tara, thank you very much for joining me for this. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, sure. I wish it now was under it, better circumstances, though. <laughs> isn't that always the case? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I find that, that uh, you know, stuff like this is where, you know, it's where you sort of uh, rise to the challenge, you know, when things come to us. And in the PR world, uh, we very rarely expect what's going to come at us. And uh, it's just to uh, get the job done. So it's yeah, our job to agreed. get some information out there. Uh, and with that in mind, we actually have uh, two special guests with us today to talk about um, <laughs> some legislation in the state of New Jersey that we think it's important for all Catholics to get um, to get a full perspective on. Uh, certainly in the in the federal government, uh, particularly with relation to the uh, in relation to the Supreme Court, we've heard a lot about some abortion uh, court cases that are coming. Uh, to a heads very soon, expected this year, probably no later than May, we'll hear some results. Um, but in the state of New Jersey, there's actually quite a bit of legislative action going on as well, where they're trying to codify um, pro-abortion protections in the state of New Jersey. So we asked uh, two of our learning colleagues uh, to join us, and I'll introduce the first one with us today is Jim King who is the executive director for the New Jersey Catholic Conference. Jim, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mike. And it's an honor to be here uh, for the first time as an NJCC representative on this podcast. I you know, follow your podcast and uh, I was always very envious of your guests. So <laughs> unfortunately, as Tara said, I'm sorry it's under these circumstances, but it truly is an honor to finally be invited onto your podcast. Well, I tell you, once you get the first invitation, the next ones come uh, come quite quickly. As, as Tara just recently found out, they come just weeks later. I can <laughs> so. attest to that. That's true. Okay. Well, that would not bother me in the least. I'd be happy to jump on anytime you need somebody. So uh, I just hopefully I don't flub it up this time. You know. <laughs> no, I'm I'm quite confident you're going to be great. And uh, Tara, who's uh, who's our other guest? So we have Jennifer Ruggiero with us. She is the Secretary for Family and Pastoral Life. She actually holds dual roles in our in our diocese, in the Diocese of Metuchen. She is also our Director of Human Life and Dignity. And she's, I consider her almost a third podcast co-host <laughs> for us because she's on so frequently and because she's just so knowledgeable in so many areas. And uh, and Jerry, my, my co-host for Am I Not Here, frequently calls her a household name <laughs> because she is such a big voice in the pro-life movement here in New Jersey. So we're thrilled to have her here with us to talk about, you know, these, these impending issues. Thanks for having me. And I have to, I have to concur with Tara said, uh, I'm nowhere near 
uh, the diocese of Metuchen for most of my life, and Jennifer's uh, reputation uh, goes far and wide as one of the uh, as one of the principal voices of the pro life movement in the state of New Jersey. So, uh, Jim, before we get into the legislation, I- I'm not sure that most you know in pew Catholics know what the New Jersey Camp- Catholic Conference is and what it does. I I certainly work with you quite often, and I I believe Jennifer and I are both on the public policy committee related to the Catholic Conference, so we we do a lot of chatting with you. But um, what is the what is the NJCC? Yeah, no, thanks, Mike. Mike, and you're right. Uh, I do find that a number of Catholics kind of know who we are, know of us, but don't know exactly what we do. Uh, you know, even in my own family, they ask me how do I like my job at the diocese, and uh, you know, I have to tell them at every gathering, I technically don't work for a diocese. I work for all the dioceses. And then, you know, their eyes just begin to glaze over and I stop talking at that point. So, uh, but it's a good question. So essentially the New Jersey Catholic Conference is the public policy voice, the legislative voice, the lobbying voice for the Catholic bishops of New Jersey. Our primary function is to monitor the uh, activities of the legislature and the state government uh, primarily, you know, and then we also work on federal issues as well, but our responsibility is here in New Jersey and uh, we analyze uh, proposed legislation, we analyze proposed regulations, uh, we determine what, if any, impact they would have on uh, the Catholic diocese, Catholics and uh, society in general. And from there, we collaborate with our diocesan uh, colleagues like yourself and Jennifer and uh, determine what type of action, what what action, if any, uh, the Catholic Church should speak out on an issue. So it could be supporting issues to reduce poverty, uh, to find equitable housing for individuals, immigration reform, or it could be to oppose issues that threaten the dignity of life, uh, like assisted suicide, which passed uh, sadly a number of years ago or became law, uh, uh, or to fight uh, these efforts to expand access and strengthen uh, protections for abortions here in New Jersey. Excellent. Well, I will have to keep that to memory now because that was an exclamation of what the NJCC does. So thank you. Well, well I hope I can remember it. So the next time somebody asks me, I can say it as, you know, articulately as that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And Jennifer, uh, your role in Metuchen, I, as Tara was saying, you're sort of uh, multifaceted. But when it comes to sort of uh, the, the pro-life movement, what is it that you do in Metuchen? Well, we run, I run the, the Office for Human Life and Dignity, and basically we work in four areas, uh, education, uh, worship and, and prayer, uh, outreach, and, um, and public policy. As you mentioned, I serve on the New Jersey Catholic Conference Public Policy Committee for many, many years. I've been at the diocese for 25 years, so uh, my role has recently expanded to um, oversee a number of other offices. So I've got my hands in a lot of, a lot of things right now. But the pro-life work has been my main um, passion. And, um, you know, it's important that we work in all those areas, uh, educating people to make sure that they, um, like you said, most Pew Catholics don't know a lot about these issues. Um, Public policy, we we work with Jim and also the USCCB on on federal issues. And, um, you know, uh, prayer, obviously prayer is the foundation of all that we do. And outreach, you know, recently the USCCB launched a program called Helping uh, Moms in Need. So that's been a really important effort that we, we've uh, taken part in across the state and across the country uh, so that we have the answer to these women that are, are facing unplanned pregnancies and are abortion-minded. Uh, so outreach is very important. And even for people that have had an abortion or experienced and are suffering, we have outreach for those 
those folks as well. So, um, so those are the four main areas that I work with in the pro-life area. Obviously, there's a whole lot of other things that I, I'm dealing with, but uh, that, that's where I am with, with pro-life. Okay. Well, then let's talk about why we're having this emergency podcast right now. Uh, Jim, you, there have been a flurry of emails that have come out from the NJCC over the past uh, few days uh, related to some bills in the New Jersey State Legislature, both in the Senate and the General Assembly. Um, can you give us sort of a synopsis of what's going on and what these bills are about? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I think I need to step back before I get into the actual bills that we're facing right now and kind of set up what uh, preceded them and what has brought us to this point. Uh, you know, uh, I think most Catholics know, uh, most people know in New Jersey for the last two years, the New Jersey legislature has been considering uh, what a bill called the Reproductive Freedom Act. And it's one of the most egregious uh, abortion bills uh, that has been introduced in the United States. It far exceeds uh, more recent uh, legislation that has been passed in uh, other states, uh, New York and Virginia come to mind first in terms of uh, what it would do, the threat it would pose to the unborn and to the dignity of life here in New Jersey. Uh, the bill was essentially guaranteeing the right of uh, abortion for anybody that comes to our state paid for with uh, state tax dollars, uh, mandated that the uh, child in the womb has no uh, independent rights of the mother. It, would, it was just a whole host. I mean, I could probably take up two podcasts going through the more extreme provisions. Uh, it had an insurance mandate that, in, uh, that required uh, health insurance coverage for uh, abortion services. And, you know, that mandate did include what we would say is a religious exemption, but they put language in that bill that uh, offered a loophole to that, you know, religious exemption. So it was really a threat to uh, people of faith uh, that work for religious organizations like our diocese or other uh, uh, religious entities, uh, forcing them to violate their uh, uh, their conscience and have to pay for abortion. So that came out that that was introduced in October of 2020, and uh, immediately New Jersey Catholic Conference and the bishops uh, put out a statement uh, opposing the bill. Uh, we then began to work begin our work with uh, Jennifer and her counterparts in the other dioceses. Uh, to just raise awareness. And through our contacts at the state house, we were made aware early on that the bill was just too extreme and most likely not going anywhere, uh, you know, in the foreseeable future. So we determined at the time it wasn't necessary to start doing a flurry of uh, emails or contacting uh, our elected officials and getting everybody uh, worked up into a frenzy over this. We, you know, were comfortable with, uh, just continuing to monitor the bill and have our conversations with elected officials, which we normally do. That's part of the process that often people don't see. You know, they see the flurry of emails we send out uh, at a time when we're asked for them to take immediate action. But, you know, when we're not doing that, we're spending time meeting with legislators, uh, you know, going through various points, analyzing these bills. So, you know, for two years, we had conducted those efforts and, you know, it was actually gaining traction. A number of uh, secular re media reports on this bill highlighted the work of the Catholic Conference and the Catholic bishops in keeping the bill stalled. And it, you know, you just saw the, uh, you saw kind of the anger of the, the 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 supporters. You know, that the bill was stalled because of these efforts. Um, we knew it was going to be a big talking piece going into the state elections that occurred this year. It was, you know, definitely. Uh, uh, I, I would say. Uh, primary talking point on the campaign trail for both candidates. Um, 
then as lame duck started, we started to hear uh, whispers that the bill was dead. You know, the Reproductive Freedom Act was dead, but there were efforts to look for a compromise bill, like a paring down to address some of the more uh, um, extreme parts. And the primary uh, issue that the legislature had on the uh, original bill was the mandate that the state use taxpayer dollars for uh, to pay for abortion services. So again, we, you know, we began our efforts to engage uh, with legislators behind the scenes, really trying to take the temperature of the legislature. Is this something that they're really going to try to move, uh, you know, uh, quickly uh, up until I would say Monday of this week, we were led to believe that although the negotiations for a compromise bill were uh, happening, you know, that there was a very low probability that the, the bill, it's, they would reach a compromise in time to pass it uh, before the conclusion of the legislative session, or what everybody knows is a lame duck, you know, the lame duck session, um, and that it would probably be reintroduced next legislative session and occur closer to when the Dobbs, the United States Supreme Court ruled on Dobbs in May or, or June. So, you know, our thinking as of this week was to prepare our efforts for the next few months and really see what can we do better? How can we re, you know, address these issues with the legislators uh, and really kind of focus on May and June? Uh, then around, I would say, Tuesday night, uh, we really started to hear an uptick in chatter uh, that negotiations were close on this bill. And at that point, we started beginning our own internal process. We didn't have a bill you know, at that point to really uh, analyze or focus on, uh, we just had some broad strokes that it was going to be pared down and the more, you know, more egregious uh, uh, um, provisions were going to be removed. But as with anything in legislation or legislative work, the devil's in the details. So we weren't going to rest comfortably, you know, thinking, oh, we'll wait and see what happens. So we started again to uh, uh, make sure that uh, legislative leadership uh, it, it, over in the state house, knew our concerns. Uh, you know, we we started making contact with them, and then I would say Wednesday night uh, is when we got official word that uh, the legislature had come to a compromise, and they came to agree on a new bill, uh, which is S forty nine, a sixty two sixty, and instead of the Reproductive Freedom Act, they're calling it the Freedom of Reproductive Choice Act, which is, uh, I'm trying to think of that term my father always used, was it uh, something by another, yeah, same thing by another name, so. Yeah, right. Um, now, the, the disturbing part of this whole situation is Wednesday night, they announced that they have a compromise. Yesterday was the last day for committee, for this legislature to hold committee hearings, and there were only a handful of committees scheduled to meet. Uh, Senate health was one. And then in the assembly, which is often considered the lower house, uh, the general assembly uh, uh, had appropriations. So we were thinking, well, would they just put it in Senate health and, you know, how are they going to make this work? Because a typical, the typical process for a bill, and if I can just kind of go off on that for a little bit, just to give people a better understanding of how, you know, the, the, the system is supposed to work. Um, you know, you'll get an announcement that there's the intent to, to introduce a bill to address a particular issue. Uh, the uh, Senate and the uh, Assembly have to meet in what they call quorum. So that's where the 
They get together, they debate a bill, they decide whether or not they're going to introduce it, and then it has to, it'll be officially introduced in quorum. The bill will then be uh, uh, assigned to a committee, you know, it'll be published. There'll actually be time to look at the, the draft of a bill, analyze the legislative language and determine what is it doing, what, could, what harm could come about. And then, you know, the committees will uh, post it for a hearing. Public will have an opportunity to talk on it, to debate it. And then the committee will decide whether or not to advance the bill to, uh, to a floor vote or to hold the bill or transfer it to another committee. Uh, I mean, I've seen this process take years, take months. Uh, I've never seen it go as quickly as what they're attempting to, what the legislature is attempting to do uh, with this particular bill. They, so they announced the compromise on Wednesday night. Quorum was scheduled for both, uh, this quorum meeting was scheduled for both the Senate and the Assembly at noon for the Senate yesterday and one o'clock for the Assembly on Thursday. Senate Health was scheduled to meet at the same time as the quorum call to you know, officially introduce the bill. Assembly Appropriations, which again was the only Assembly Committee uh, meeting that day and was really the only committee they could put it in to get it to the next step, which is the full floor vote, uh, was meeting at least two hours before the assembly was scheduled to meet for their quorum. So I, 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 I don't want to confuse people, but it was just the, the, the parliamentarian rules that they follow were just not being you know, adhered to, at least in our opinion. Uh, we went to Senate Health. We prepared uh, testimony. When I say we, the New Jersey Catholic Conference, we were ready to testify in opposition of this new bill, but we still had not seen any legislative text. It was not posted. No one had seen it. I actually talked to a couple of legislators on these committees yesterday, and I said, we'd like to see this bill. And they they all said, so would we. You know, wow. the, so wow. Even the legislators who were on the committees hadn't seen the bill. So both committees actually ended up completing their preset agenda. And I should mention, I'm sorry, I left this out, but I should mention that uh, technically you're supposed to give five days notice to the public that a bill will be considered in a committee. So, you know, we weren't even given five days. We were lucky we got almost 12 hours, but um, in any case, both committees went through their agenda that they had previously announced. They uh, recessed and for about six hours, I would say, close to six hours, there were ongoing negotiations because they still could not settle on the legislative language. Both committees reconvened at around six o'clock last night uh, a bill was finally uh, made available to the members as well as to the people still in attendance to the committee hearings. Uh, I have it right here. I'm still going through it. It is much, you know, it's smaller than the original bill. It's four pages. Uh, the original bill was somewhere around 50 pages. So wow. they, they've pared it down. Um, you know, we, we testified as well as other uh, pro-life organizations in the state, uh, New Jersey Right to Life, uh, other, you know, other religious groups. You know, and they cleared the bill. And again, members of these committees were sitting there saying, we, we, we're, we're just getting this bill. How can we vote on it to clear it and advance it to a floor vote? But uh, it made its way through. It's uh, now we anticipate that it will go before both houses on Monday, which is their final voting day of this session uh, for a full floor vote. So that really spurred the flurry of emails. We had done a, a, a ton of work prior to the committee hearings to get uh, our, our resources as best we could in place to, you know, alert people of this, alert them of how quickly the legislature is attempting to do this. 
and uh, to get them to call their, their their elected officials, their senators and their assembly members, you know, they to let them know not to vote for this, at least by the very fact that how quickly this is being done, you know, it's just unheard of. So uh, that's where we're at right now. So, so Jennifer, you know, for the rank and file in a situation like this, you know, what's our, what's our hope that people will do, you know, in, in the churches, in their homes, in the, in the towns and communities? Well, at this point, all we're, we really can ask them to do is get on the phone or, or, or email, you know, do the action alert, contact your legislators and do it immediately. Um, and, and tell your friends and your family members to do it as well. We, as Jim said, we did a lot of legwork. Uh, over the last couple of years with this, it was introduced back in October of 2020. And immediately uh, we started to work across the state on trying to educate people because it wasn't the time to pull the trigger on the action alert. As Jim said, they were monitoring it very closely. Uh, most people have no idea, you know, the the intricacies of these kinds of pieces of legislation. So we put together a webinar. Uh, we encourage people to have parish meetings and, um, you know, discuss this this. Uh, Reproductive Freedom Act. Uh, we tried to have prayer events around it. Um, so we've been doing a lot of work all along. And now's the critical time for people to contact their, their representatives and, um, and, and spread the word as much as possible. We're trying to get the, the pastors to read an uh, announcement at the, at the masses this weekend in the hopes that people will do it over the weekend and possibly on Monday. Um, but we have been doing work all along, and it's just a shame that our New Jersey uh, legislators uh, do some backhanded kind of things. It's not surprising that this is happening in the lame duck and in, in the dark days of winter, you know, when, when everybody's distracted by snowstorms and COVID. Um, unfortunately, that's what we've kind of learned is the way they work, you know. So yeah. that you know, that's where we're at. We've done a lot of work, and we've been keeping it on kind of the front burner. But uh, at this point, it's just contact your legislators and, you know, tell your friends and family members to do it as well. Jen, on that point, like as an average person in the pews, I might think, you know, my one little email to my legislators might not make a difference. Can you talk a little bit about from the legislative point of view, you know, does it make a difference? Yeah, sometimes it does. I mean, it, you know, at this point, we're very hopeful, but, you know, it, it, we're not sure. But we've been told by legislators that they, if they get calls and, and they uh, get emails. They're, they're all counted. And, um, you know, we've had workshops where legislators have come to speak with us about the most effective ways to make a difference. And, and they always say that phone calls and uh, emails, sometimes their phone, bo- bo- phone ma- mailboxes get full and they, and they don't pick up the phone after that. But um, emails certainly work and they, and they, they can make a difference. They can sway, uh, sway a vote. Yeah. And what I'd like to add to that, Jennifer, is, uh, you know, we've had conversations with legislators as well on that uh, very uh, question. You know, does this work? What is the most uh, efficient way to communicate with you? Is this helpful? And, uh, I've had experience where some of these legislators have come back and this might be surprising to some people, but sometimes they don't read the entire bill that their name is on as a sponsor, that that they're sponsoring or they they said they support. And you highlight to them, you say, this is in the bill. This would do this. This would do that. And, uh, you know, they're shocked. They're like, well, nobody brought that to my attention. And uh, I, I can remember clearly two years ago, there was another bill we were we were working on, we were opposing. And uh, one of the legislators who we have a fairly decent relationship with uh, uh, was a, it was a prime sponsor of the bill. And I went to him, 
you know, at the last minute. And I said, you know, uh, Assemblyman, you, your name is still on this bill, you know, and it would do this to the church. Uh, within three hours, he uh, pulled his name from, uh, he pulled himself off the bill. He, he said, I'm no longer sponsor of this bill. And thankfully, that bill was pulled off the agenda, the voting agenda at the end of the last lame duck session. So, yeah, the, they, you know, we can't assume that they already know what we know. And they, we can't assume that they know how we, uh, 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 what our position is on a bill. They have to hear it because, you know, they work for us technically. So, they, and, and oftentimes they're appreciative if you uh, do this in a respectful and charitable manner. Especially in this case where the bill hasn't even been read by many of the legislators. You know, it's, it's uh, unfortunate that's the way it works, but we can educate them as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious in the, in over the last 25 years, uh, Jennifer, uh, you know, with regard to what you've been working on, you know, how, how has things changed um, in terms in New Jersey with really, you know, Related to the pro-life movement and you know the uh, the reducing of restrictions to get an abortion in the state of New Jersey, we have not had a lot of success with the abortion issue, but we fought many pro-life issues. Um, you know, I think it was twelve years or so that we we fought against the assisted suicide bill. Um, that was a, a heck of a, a road. Uh, I started back in uh, '97, I believe, and um, one of the first things I got involved with was with, was with the physician-assisted suicide and educating people about that because it was right around the time when it was legalized in, in Oregon. Uh, we've we fought the battle of stem cell research. Uh, you know, we that was a ballot issue, and we had a video shown in every parish across the state, uh, talking, educating people, the prisoners, about what stem cell embryonic stem cell research is all about. And we ended up defeating that ballot question. It was, it was almost a miracle. And that was large part due to the efforts of the Catholic Church. Uh, another issue that we dealt with was the, um, the death penalty. Yeah. We were able to abolish the death penalty the same year as, as the whole stem cell research search fight happened. So we have had some success. With the abortion, abortion issue, um, you know, we, we tried to pass through a parental notification um, a piece and that, and that got defeated. Um, we haven't, one of the things that really is fascinating is that, you know, our, our legislator, our governor wants to push this Reproductive Freedom Act or this compromise bill through, but we have one of the most permissive abortion laws in the country. Um, there's really no need for this legislation mm -hmm. because we already have such expansive abortion rights and reproductive rights. So it's just, it's, it boggles the mind why we, why we have to go this extra measure. Um, but in any case, we, we have virtually no restrictions on abortion in our state. And that's something that the average person in the pew does not know. Most right. people think, oh, you know, if my teenage girl wanted to, you know, have an abortion, she'd have to get my okay, or, or at least my consent or, or my notification. Or, you know, there's all kinds of restrictions that other states have, and many have enacted them over the last few years. Uh, we have we have virtually none. So yeah. uh, there really isn't a need for this kind of measure at this time. But I think it's all in response to the whole, it started in October of 2020 because Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and everyone was fearful about the Supreme Court, the makeup of the Supreme Court. And so now that with the Dobbs case, uh, that was kind of, they, they decided that they would hear the Dobbs case back in uh, June of this past year. Um, now everybody's afraid that with the conservative court that there's a chance that Roe v. Wade could either be weakened or overturned. And so that's why there's this immediate push for that to happen. 
So, so let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, we, we hear a lot about the Dobbs case, and I think a lot of people are expecting to, and that, that is not the only pro-life case uh, that the Supreme Court is uh, looking at this uh, for this term. Um, but what is it about Dobbs and the, and the other abortion right cases that, um, that maybe people don't know about and the reason why these are such hot button issues, certainly how they might affect Roe v. Wade. But um, can you tell us a little bit about those cases themselves? Well, I can talk a little bit about the Dobbs case. It's basically a um, they, the Supreme Court decided to take it's called the Dobbs versus the Jackson's Women's Health Organization. And basically in Mississippi back in 2018, they passed a. A law called the Mississippi Gestational Age Act, which basically bans abortion after 15 weeks. Um, and so it immediately was challenged in the court and um, it was you know, not enacted. And so the Supreme Court this past June decided to take it up. And um, basically the question before the court is whether or not um, it is okay for a state to limit abortion prior to viability which is uh, basically the point at which a baby can live outside the womb, um, you know, and survive. So um, that's the question before the court. It's, um, you know, the oral argument started on December 1st, and we're expected to hear a decision sometime in June of this year. And so there's a big concern that due to the makeup of the court that um, they could make a decision that would turn the decision about abortion rights back to the states. So in other words, it wouldn't be that all of a sudden abortion would be banned across the country. It would just turn the decision back to the states. Now, in a place like New Jersey, we have very permissive abortion, you know, abortion rights. Uh, other states have those restrictions. And, and some states, as soon as Roe v. Wade would be overturned, abortion would be banned. There's a, a certain number of states that fall into that category. So um, it's very complicated. And a lot of people don't understand, um, you know, what that what that means if Roe v. Wade were overturned. Um, but that just kind of, you know, gives you a little bit of information about, and again, New Jersey, it would just be exactly the way it is. Um, in other states, it would, it would be different. So, yeah. And that, and that might, if I could just jump in, that was one, it wasn't our primary talking point, but as we were going, you know, as we were talking about, uh, the, in meeting about the Reproductive Freedom Act, you know, the, the line, you know, if, uh, Roe goes, so does our, uh, access to, uh, abortion services. And I was able to take off of one of the leading pro-abortion uh, think tanks in the United States off their website. And I, I was able to show a legislator, I said, uh, according to the, you know, this, this, this group, the Guttmacher Institute, uh, they say clearly, Roe, if Roe is overturned by the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, it won't affect a single thing here in New Jersey. So even the, the, the pro-abortion groups admitted as well so it's kind of been this uh, uh, this chicken little uh, panic that the the supporters of this bill are using to um, you know uh, say we need to do this now, and that's kind of you know what they're saying is the reason why they have to rush it through right now. But again, yesterday at the state house, people were saying that the decision is not expected till May or June. Why are we rushing this now? Can't we have a debate on this? So it's yeah. Jennifer was spot on. Yeah. Because there are plenty of other legislative sessions between now and the summertime, right, Jim? Right. So what will happen is on Tuesday at noon, the new legislative session will begin. Will begin. So the governor will be sworn in for his second term, and the one all 120 members of the legislature will be sworn in uh, for their for their term. And a legislative session goes for 
uh, two years. So whatever bills will be introduced this January will remain in consideration until the end, until 2023, right? 2020, yeah, 2024. And, uh, you know, we'll go through another lame duck. But yes, uh, there's already a schedule out for uh, January and February of when the legislature was going to meet. Uh, they usually break sometime end of March, middle of April. And by break, I mean they focus solely on the state budget because they have to. It's constitutionally mandated that they have to pass it by the end the last day of June. Or as we've all experienced over the years, there's times when the government shuts down and, you know, uh, and you can't get services. But uh, anyway, so they'll shut down for budget negotiations and then they come back and they meet in May and they do a flurry of activity in uh, June. So yeah, no, Mike, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there's plenty of opportunity for them to debate this uh, uh, over the next couple of months. So there's absolutely no reason to rush this through right now. Okay. One of the things that I'd like to add is that, um, you know, very few people know this, that, um, you know, again, we have very permissive abortion rights in this, in this country. Um, the Mississippi bill that, that they're challenging in the Supreme Court, uh, 15 weeks, uh, after 15 weeks, a baby uh, would not be able to, there'd be a ban on abortion. Um, this is just like 90% of all the countries throughout the world. Um, only we, the United States, China and Korea, and a few other countries are the only countries that have such permissive abortion rights uh, laws. So, um, you know, the average person on the street doesn't realize that what permissive abortion, I mean, up until birth, you know, um, it's pretty extreme. And, and the fact that our country is in, in this group of countries is, is pretty sad, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so we always like to point that out because, um, you know, we shouldn't be a leader in this area, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And Jennifer, just on what you're saying, I mean, Again, going through the bill that they introduced yesterday, I just wanted to point out this this uh, this thought of uh, how um, extreme they're trying to uh, phrase abortion. I mean, there's a section in this bill which essentially blames a child for every hardship a mother or a family can experience. They 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 in this bill they essentially claim a child is the reason uh, a mother cannot. Uh, uh, pursue her career goals or her education or why a family may not be able to put food on the table. And that's why uh, abortion access is so necessary in New Jersey. And I just think, you know, it's, uh, it's really a sad state of affairs that our, our state wants to be known as uh, the place where uh, uh, babies are the problems for, you know, a multitude of reasons. So. Yeah, I listened to the, um, the oral arguments in early December, uh, before the Supreme Court, I was just struck by how they argued that the 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 idea of parenting is much more of a burden than it is to kill a baby. Mm -hmm. So a baby being killed is less of a burden than it is for a parent to have the burden of parenting. And it just like it talk about upside down logic, you know, um, very sad that people can actually think that way. Um, one of the other things, going back to one of your questions before, Mike, um, we had a very strong effort over the last several years um, for the 2020 project. It was an effort in New Jersey to um, ban abortion after 20 weeks, which is when a baby is capable of feeling pain. And it, our, our bill was kind of modeled after the Pain Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which was done on the federal level and was uh, not enacted. Um, and so we've been working hard on that. But with this whole Reproductive Freedom Act, we had to kind of switch gears because 
that was on the table. Uh, so there have been many efforts um, across the country and in our state too to um, to limit abortion and to put some restrictions. You know that everybody can kind of agree on. If the baby's feeling pain and you're you know doing an abortion procedure and the baby's feeling pain, that certainly is something that people can um, can kind of see as inhumane. Um, so we're trying to you know trying to have efforts in, in that area, but haven't had too much success, but we can, we always have to pray. <laughs> we have to yes. pray that uh, even when it looks, looks grim or, or, or like we're not, not too much hope. Uh, we have to pray that, uh, you know, God will intervene for us. That leads perfectly to my question that I wanted to ask both you and Jim, because I think all four of us are in a unique position where we see a lot that happens um, in the Catholic church, but also in the public and, and particularly both of you who work with the public policy so frequently, you know, how do you keep going? How do you keep your faith after all these years and after, you know, there's so much, there's so many heavy things that come out of these legislative actions. How do you keep your faith? Well, I can, I can say for me personally, um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the um, biggest projects that I've worked with over the years with Jim and, and his predecessor as well, uh, Pat Brannigan, was the uh, whole physician-assisted suicide uh, bill uh, law that ended up becoming a law back in 2019, and um, really had to educate myself on end-of-life issues because that was our those were our talking points. That was our you know we should be a compassionate society that takes care of the elderly and the sickly and those that are near death. And in my own personal life, I had to experience recently, over the last few years, uh, three people very close to me, my mom and dad, and most recently my aunt had to, um, were struck with very serious illnesses and, and passed. And, and because I had that background, I had gained that background and I have a strong faith, it really helped me walk that journey with them in a very beautiful way. And um, I was really blessed because of the work that I do. I was blessed to be in a position where I could... Um, I could journey with them and um, in a beautiful, grace-filled way. So that really has helped me uh, where these pro-life issues really intersect with our personal lives. And um, the knowledge that I've been able to gain over the years has helped me in, in, in those areas. Yeah, I, I think I can echo what Jennifer said, you know, not in terms of the specific experiences, but uh that overall, the, the, just the opportunities I've had throughout my life. And, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was studying to be a priest for six years. And I remember um, a priest who was a mentor of mine while in seminary said to me, you know, the best you can do with your ministry is just plant the seed and allow the Lord to take over and help nourish that seed. So it, it was kind of his way of saying, always try to be humble and know that you're not doing your work, you're doing the Lord's work. Um, and you take and you do it in different fashions. You know, you do it as a person who works on public policy. Uh, you might be a, a you know evangelizer in a parish, uh, but you have to keep focused that you're doing the Lord's work and not your own. And uh, you know, I've become, I think, especially I've been with the conference for about nine years now, and two years now as the executive director. And I've really grown grown close to St. John the Twenty Third's uh, evening prayer, where he essentially would visit the chapel every night and look at the tabernacle and say, Lord, I've done all I can. The rest is up to you. So I, I, I don't even wait for night. Sometimes I just say it multiple times throughout the day. So, you know, it, it's pretty much my, how I keep going, you know, through the grace of God. 
And just one other uh, personal experience I was able to have that was just so, so joyful for me, having worked on the, uh, the, the beginning of life issues for all these years, I was uh, blessed to be in the, the uh, delivery room when my first grandchild, first and second grandchildren were born. And I, you know, I've had my, I had four children of my own, but you don't watch that happen. You know, you're kind of in the experience, but I was in the delivery room when my first grandchild was born and I can't even, I couldn't talk for a week. I was so stunned by the whole experience. What a blessing, what a miracle and everything that I've worked so hard for over the last years uh, just kind of, kind of just came spilling out that day because life is just so precious, especially, uh, you know, when, when it's vulnerable. And uh, I got to see that firsthand, which was great. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I, I had a similar experience when my son was born uh, for almost 14 years ago. Um, I, I was, I've always been a pro-life guy. I've always had an appreciation for it. And uh, certainly I had an appreciation for parenthood as well. But I, there was a, a changing moment that occurred when you actually were in the room and, and saw what had happened and that, and the, and that realization that life forms. And, but for me, I, I actually recall that it happened a little earlier than that, too, uh, was when we went and to, I don't know if it was the first sonogram, but maybe the second sonogram and, um, maybe it might've been the first, I can't remember though. Um, uh, it was the first because I was amazed, uh, you know, I was looking at the sonogram and it was a, it was a 3d, uh, and video sonogram. It wasn't just a still shot and seeing him moving around like a little worm inside of my wife's belly at like uh, three months at that point, probably. And I remember being dumbfounded by it. And it was like then that I understood the life factor and, and was there. And then as he grew over time and, and whatnot inside of a womb, and now he's huge, he's gigantic. <laughs> so it's, um, but yeah, it really, that, there is a truth to that. But I think that there are some people who, you know, we hear a lot, you know, talking about the, the opposition in this regard. And I think about this a lot because I, my job, forces me to listen to the opposition in all sorts of areas uh, who are against the church. And a lot of the people I hear from when it comes to abortion are people that, that don't have children, that made the conscious decision not to have children, and, um, and themselves had had abortions. And you, they always talk with such conviction. Um, and part of the reason I'm convinced of is because they, many of them, not all of them, but many of them have no understanding of what that life process was like that to your point uh, actually i think jim you may have said it that it was written into the into the bill about all the trauma that occurs with uh, with the birth of a child that pays no respect to the incredible wonderment that yes. i am i am convinced that i am a better i as a matter of fact i know for a fact that if i did not have my son i would not be at whatever level of a good person i am now I would be 10 times less so if my son hadn't born. I'd be less responsible. I'd, everything would be less in it. Uh, and I'm convinced of that because I know what I was like before the kid came around. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have this job. I'll tell you that. The, um, and and I, I think there's a lot of power there. And I don't think that that element of life has ever given its proper argument or proper acceptance by the opposition when it comes to the pro-life movement. There's always this expect. Just one other thing, Jennifer. There's always this expectation that... Um, that this is going to somehow make life harder on a person. And that's not to say that there isn't difficulties that come with parenthood. There absolutely are. And that sometimes it's a limiting effect and that's true too, but that is not necessarily a bad thing. And it's so hard to get people to understand that sometimes. Yeah, you're, uh, yeah. I have, um, I always, whenever we talk about the abortion issue, it's so imperative that we bring up 
uh, the fact that many, many people, I mean, I think it's one in four women by the time they're 40, or maybe even one in three now, uh, have had at least one abortion. So there's so many people, like you spoke about, a lot of the people that are on the other side of this issue um, have had an abortion and are hurting. And, and so they're, they're lashing out um, in, in support of this um, for whatever reason. There's so many women and men that are, are you know, have experienced loss with, um, you know, emotional stress, spiritual brokenness, physical wounds. Um, we do have an outreach service called Project Rachel or Rachel's Vineyard. There's two different outreach services that will counsel women and men uh, about their experience. We'll bring them back into the church. There's usually a priest involved. So if anyone out there listening has had a bad abortion experience and is feeling uh, a loss or you know sadness or depression, suicidal, all these things happen. Um, there is help out there. And our helpline is 1-877-877-4300. And it's a helpline and um, someone can, will pick up the phone confidentially and, and be able to offer help. And there's many other outreach services in that area as well. I always like to bring that up because it's a wound that many people carry around um, and, and we, we want to help. You know, I, I told this story on the podcast once before, but it's, it's fitting here as well. Um, I, my general physician works for, you know, a, a, a typical health system. And uh, the, I only started going to him about seven years ago. And the first time I went to him, um, uh, I noticed on his lapel, he had the, the, the bare feet of the pro-life movement. And uh, on his other uh, lapel, he had a Knights of Columbus symbol. I was like, mm -hmm. wow, a doctor walking around with two of those. That's unusual. I think you don't expect to see that. So I didn't say anything that first time, but the next time I went to at the next time I went to talk to him at that point, I was working for the diocese and I said, wow, that's, that's amazing that you, that you were okay with like the, that this, the health center doesn't make you take that off. It's like, no, no, they understand that I'm a, I'm a pro-life doctor. And I said, well, what happens if, uh, if a woman were to come to you and in, in distress about her pregnancy? And he says, well, it has happened. And he goes, I, they, I come, I see them, I treat them as, as I would in any other way. And then I counsel them about all the different opportunities that are before them. And if they make the decision to go and have an abortion, I, I say to them, I, I cannot help you. I'm sorry that I cannot help you. However, when you have it done, if you have it done, come back and see me immediately so that I can help you through the next stages. Because it is an incredibly traumatic experience for, for every woman who goes through it, whether they, whether they accept that it's traumatic or not. Um, but it's important to for, for these people to remember, I think, to, and to your point, Jennifer, that we don't ostracize those who have had abortions. We understand the, the, the pain and we understand the life that they've led. And that sometimes they've made decisions that we may not necessarily agree with, but they are still welcome in the church and welcome amongst us. And we want to love them and help them. Um, you, Jim, Jim, you were going to say something? No, uh, Mike, I was actually thinking about uh, what you were commenting on uh, in terms of being a father and it kind of, it, it sparked a memory for me. I remember prior to being married, you know, the group of guys I was hanging out with, this is after I left seminary. So this isn't in seminary. I want to clear, I want to make that, you know, clear before I go into the story, but, you know, we would go out on our Friday night and do our Friday night things at, you know, various bars and everything. And I, I remember uh, overhearing a conversation between two of the guys, two of my buddies, and they were actually sharing stories about how, how many abortions they've paid for, uh, you know, with different women they've, they were with. Wow. 
And I didn't say anything, you know, at that moment, but it really got me thinking as to, you know, the other side says this is a women's, you know, women's issue. Men have, men should just, you know, stay to the side or support it. And, you know, like you, Mike, I have to sit there and look at what does the opposition say? Because I really think the only way you can kind of debate these arguments is to understand it. I always think of, uh, the line in the movie Backdraft, you know, in order to fight fire, you have to love it a little bit. And I'm not saying I love these arguments, but you do have to give them time. You have to look at them. You have to listen to them as hard as that may be. And while I was thinking, when I think about the opposition and what they say, it really made it important to me as a father now uh, saying that as, a, as Catholic men, we have to do more so as not to treat women and uh, objectify them, because that's what you're finding in society. So I really... You know, I, I take that as a primary responsibility with my boys, you know, to, you know, give them that proper vision. So as hopefully one day they're not in a bar swapping stories of how they've had these experiences with women and they're, you know, counting up how many abortions. Because I really think that's just another way we're going to be able to change hearts and minds on this is, you know, men have to step up and be, you know, not like you said, that damning voice of condemning people. But really, you know, this is what true respect, true love, true care is appreciation of equality. So no, I, I thank you for bringing that up about fatherhood, Mike, because that, that sparked sure. it in me. And I think it's important, you know, especially for men out there, even if they're not married or have uh, children right now, they consider. Yeah. Now, Tara, um, <laughs> I've been meaning to ask you, uh, this is, a, this is, I hate to use the word fortuitous, but this is well-timed, I guess. Um, you know, one of, one of my weirdly this is a weird, it's always a weird sentence when I say this. One of my uh, most enjoyable, uh, most loving, I don't know. One of the events that are coming up on the Catholic calendar is on Friday, January 21st. And it's the March for Life down in Washington, D.C. Now, I went to my first one when I was about 13, 14 years old. And I've been to it almost every single year since I worked for the diocese. And it's a great event. It's been going on for almost 50 years now uh, since uh, Roe was first enacted. I know in our diocese, we send busloads down to D.C. to march. And my bishop, uh, Bishop Sullivan, sits on the, uh, the corner of New Jersey and Constitution along the, the march route and greets every single contingent from the Diocese of Camden who uh, makes their way down to the march, uh, every single church, every single parish, every single school, every single ministry, uh, wow. come over and say hi to him. He wants to uh, thank you for, for, for coming down. I'm curious in the diocese of, uh, Metuchen, is that, is that the same? Yeah, I think so. Bishop Cecchio is, um, he usually goes down every year and he's always one to be with the people. So he's, you always see pictures of him you know, among, we have a contingent usually from the um, Catholic Center at Rutgers. So that's always such a nice group to see. So you'll always see pictures of him specifically with the young people, um, you know, trying to, to make a difference. Uh, so that's always great to see. I've never actually been. So oh, Tara. Tara. I went to one year. Me and you, me year. and you, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do a crossover Facebook live down there. We're, we're going <laughs> to next year. It. Next I would year. love it. Okay. And you're not too far. It doesn't conclude too far from the Dubliner, which is a <laughs> so true. watering hole. So that's even, uh, that's like the cherry even on better. top of the Sunday. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Jennifer. Go ahead. We, uh, you know, typically uh, Bishop Cecchio would go down and celebrate the youth mass and, and rally, which happens before the march. Mm -hmm. And that's why he um, usually is seen in pictures with the young people, because we usually send 
several of our busloads of you know high school students and college students down to the youth rally. Unfortunately, that's been canceled the last two years. I think it's remote this year. Yeah. Um, but also, I just want to mention we have a rally for life in Trenton, our state capital. And this year, it's really important that we have a presence down there, especially in light of this legislation. And that's on January 14th from 11 to 1, I believe, at the state house. And Bishop Cecchio will be doing the opening prayer and some opening remarks at that event. So another another opportunity for those who can't get to Washington uh, because of COVID or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, if you can't make it to D.C., uh, if you can't make it to Trenton, you know, uh, and Jennifer mentioned this earlier, you know, the power of prayers is very important. And having these conversations with your family and friends and and talking to people in the opposition, I, I would I dare say that. Certainly outside of my my work life, most of the people I interact with are, are probably a, the pro-abortion crowd. And I do my best to always give the, the Catholic and the uh, Christian and the pro-life response to it. You know, typically what you'll hear from the other side is, uh, you know, you just believe in a restrictive life for women. And I'm like, no, that's not the case at all. And I can prove it because you walk to any rally and you're going to see that most of the people there happen to be women. Um, you go to the March for life. One of the most beautiful things about the March for life is just how many young people are there. It's, it's not, it's not the demographic that I think a lot of people think of as pro-life. It is the people who are young and vibrant and have their entire life ahead of them. And they want to live it fully and they want to live in a society that, that embraces life. I could just add to that, that half the babies in the womb are, are little girls. That's right. Yeah, We're, we we really like women in the Catholic Church. <laughs> People have to really re- start to understand that. Um, no, I heard, but Mike, I heard you somebody once say in the, uh, uh, it was a Protestant minister that I was working with on something. He goes, "You're the only organization that I know that gets accused of misogyny and deifying a woman at the same time for your belief in Mary." So <laughs> the only institution that hates women but also treats women like gods. That's right. Well, I've been. Uh, I've actually been trying to convince our uh, managing editor to do a, uh, a story soon about uh, women in Catholic leadership positions like Jennifer, like Tara, um, and to, to really kind of talk about that a little bit. And that'll, that's a that's a conversation for a different day. But, um, you know, I, I, I bristle whenever I hear that uh, the Catholic Church or pro-life entities are anti-woman, when the reality is we could not have been more pro-woman. And and to your point, Jennifer, you know, a lot of times you'll hear, oh, well, if you're if you're pro-life, why don't you do anything for the kid after he's born? I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what we do. That's anywhere we can, everywhere we can. So, we'll, yeah. Well, thank you all for joining the podcast. Tara, thank you very much for for being my co-host today. I really do greatly appreciate that. Jim, I promise we will have you on to future podcasts. Jim Jim has been on me for years now to have him on the podcast and I have been I have been uh, derelict in my duty to to get him okay, on. So Mike. I appreciate the opportunity anytime. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you. All right everybody and to, to, and the marching orders to everyone listening is you know go to the NJCC website which is by the way Jim what is the NJCC? njcatholic.org is our mm-hmm. website. And they can also find us on Facebook under New Jersey Catholic Conference. So right. like and share and spread it out on your social media feeds, please. And you can find the action items there uh, to get in t- touch with your legislature. So yes. thanks a lot, everybody. And everybody have a great week. You thanks. too. You too, you too. God bless.